Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. That plant is nationally critical, which is the highest level of threats in New Zealand, and it's estimated as what, 800 left in the wild, about? Yeah. And we managed to grow 300 this year. What you see there is basically a third of the actual population in New Zealand. <laughs> as impressive as it looks, and I just realised this one's got a caterpillar hanging off it. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. I'm standing in a plant nursery behind the Oamaru Dockfield Station in North Otago with Dr. Clement Legru and Tom Waterhouse. We're experimenting because there's no book on how to do it. But as you can see, we've had a bit of success. So these ones, oh, they've even started flowering. Tom works as a ranger here and has been growing up rare native plants from the nearby limestone ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are Lepidium tisimbrioides, um, grown from seed, taken from Waio Toro, which is Guards Road in the Waitaki Valley. As Clement said, there are less than 800 Lepidium tisimbrioides plants in the wild. But here, Tom shows me trays of them. Small little rosettes of leaves growing out of pots topped with limestone gravel. How to describe them? Well, they're little, but the stems and leaves look wiry and tough, with the flowers on a stalk reaching up. Tom tells me in the wild they can grow taproots of up to two metres in length, so they can find cracks down through the limestone and schist rock that they've been found on. They are only found in a few places. Two spots in central Otago and also here in the Waitaki River Valley, which is near to and sometimes forms part of the boundary line between Otago and Canterbury in New Zealand's South Island. So a very limited range. And with their favourite places in the wild shrinking because of human modification, they have been doing it tough. Tom is trying to figure out the best way to grow them from seed with just the right amount of tough love. It's basically to trial the best methods to grow them, to give them the best chance to survive once we put them back out there. Because um, in the past, with lots of different you know, limestone plants, people have had trouble. They can raise them in a nursery environment, in a tunnel house, but they're not necessarily hard enough for... Real life. Yeah. The nursery is an open-top, fenced-in space at the back of the gravel car park behind the Dockfield station. It's a crisp autumn morning and kids are getting dropped off to the Montessori across the way. Tom shows me another low-growing little shrub. That's Carmichaelia. So that's a native broom, a dwarf broom, that um, again only grows on this particular corner of the Waitaki Valley at two or three sites. And I think there's less than 250 of those in the wild, you know, wild individuals that we know about. And for all of these plants, when you say less than 250 in the wild, you mean in New Zealand, you mean in the world? Yeah, 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 that's right. In, yeah. And again, that species is only found in this little corner of the Waitaki Valley, so between Duntroon and 
just the other side of Kurao. So it's only a very small, real restricted range here. To help me understand the main problem facing these plants in the wild, Tom and Clement show me what they call recruitment. Basically, new baby plants growing around the adults. Here in the nursery, in some of the Lepidium cisimbrioides pots, we can't see this happening. These are three Lepidium cisimbrioides plants that, w- that were raised by the dock nursery at Machu Carrara on the Banks Peninsula. And once they've flowered, we've found that one of them's a male and two of them are females, which is great because it means they've been able to pollinate each other. And um, yeah, we've already got some... Do we have seedlings? We've in? got some seedlings coming in coming through just in the pots can you see these here they're so tiny these tiny wee ones mm. here but like the fact that we've got recruitment is that pot that plant is only two years old and that's basically in that pot there's more recruitment that we've seen in the wild for the last two years and it's not because those plants are not setting seeds in the wild we've got really good looking female plants that are setting like dozens of seeds every year but the seeds just don't germinate so there's no recruitment which means that those plants produce seeds but they never grow into plants because the competition is too high from their weeds. And so we come to the crux of the problem, habitat change, and the main culprit, exotic grasses including fescue grasses. They talk about limestone sites being islands, you know, in the sea of modified environments. Some of the plants within those sites are basically islands in themselves. You know, the, the top of the scarp is completely covered in, in fescue, ex- exotic grass sward. And then you'll have this, we've, we've been finding, stumbling across these single plants in the middle that have no chance of recruiting, you know, even if they set seed, the, the, the sward's too thick. Clement and I have travelled up from Dunedin, where he is based. Clement is a science advisor for DOC, looking after naturally rare and threatened ecosystems including these limestone ecosystems in the Waitaki Valley. But he is clear that while this nursery work is important, it's not the long-term solution. We've been very species-focused in our work for a long time, so you look after the plants you have and you keep them alive, but it's only part of the solution because you need to also provide the habitat for them to help themselves by producing babies and the next generation and increasing numbers because we can keep plants alive in an ocean of weeds, but if we don't get them to set seeds and make babies, at some point they will die, <laughs> naturally. And every time one of the mature plants die, then if we don't produce the next generation, it's one less. <laughs> and at some point you hit the zero, and when you hit the zero, it's over. So, yeah. Today, Clement and Tom are bringing me to a dock reserve purchased because of the endangered plants found there including a type of gentian that is our focus for the day. Gentianella calcis, subspecies calcis. Now, there are different species and subspecies of gentian. The calcis refers to its chosen habitat, limestone. And this particular calcis subspecies is found only in two sites in the Waitaki Valley, Awahokomo and Waipata, or earthquakes, which is the reserve we are headed to. So the reserve site was purchased by DOC in 2015? Yeah, through the Natural History Fund grant, and it was purchased specifically for some of the rare plants that, that live on it. 
And then in 2016 or 17, we did what we usually do, which is fence it, put some rabbit meshing on it to make sure no lagomorphs would come in. Remove the stock, which has some advantages, but also some issues. And one of them is that the weeds are not under control any longer. And usually we are good at getting on top of what we call woody weeds, which is gorse, broom, buckthorn, all the kind of high-growing weeds, which Tom is chasing, and we're doing well on that, but now we need to sort out what the weed issue is and how we sort it out. And you'll see you'll see better what I mean when we get the gentian patch, because it, it'd be like looking for gentian within the weeds. So this reserve on limestone soil was bought because it is one of New Zealand's naturally rare and threatened ecosystems, of which Clement says there are many. Depending on which expert you talk to, include between 70 and 90 ecosystem types across New Zealand. And what's called naturally rare ecosystem is any ecosystem type that represents less than 0.05% of the land surface of New Zealand. So a lot of wetlands are naturally rare ecosystem because they're very small and discreet in nature, but more well-known ecosystem would be braided rivers. So all the braided river beds in Canterbury, for example, uh, are encompassed into a naturally rare ecosystem. The one we stand in on at the moment is limestone, so all limestone outcrops, uh, they spread across New Zealand, but on like overall they represent a very small surface in New Zealand, so that's what a naturally rare ecosystem is. And the problem is because they're so sprinkled across New Zealand and so small, they've kind of fallen through the cracks of conservation and management across New Zealand. And now we're picking up where we left. Clement is part of a small national team. He tells me that in 2018, pre-COVID, there was a lot of strategizing done to try to expand dock work so that these species and systems that had fallen through the cracks got brought back into the limelight. Right now, Clement is part of a team of three, and he is focused on South Island-specific rare ecosystems. With a small team and so many ecosystems to care for, they had to prioritise. So one of the biggest exercises we did at the beginning is come up with a list and reach out to every single non-expert across New Zealand to tell us which one we should focus on first before they got lost. So I've got a few different project on a few different ecosystems that made it into our top 10 priorities, which limestone is actually number one uh, in the eastern South Island because they hold a lot of the biodiversity that is limestone endemic, but they've been under a lot of pressure from human impacts. Uh, coastal turf, which is a community of very short statute plants that are really limited to a marginal strip on exposed coastline. So Otago's got quite a few. And a lot of those sites are actually either impacted by grazing or weeds or people because they're often scenic sites so people walk across them. And because it's such inconspicuous ecosystem, you, people don't know they're walking across nationally critical ecosystems. You mean that they're kind of plants that are short in stature? Uh, yes, yeah, they're tiny. Like even when they flower, they reach probably a height of maybe a centimeter. Mm. So when they flower, they're quite spectacular because you basically have like a very lush green carpet sprinkling with white and yellow and very short-lived. So most people wouldn't know they're walking across 
plants and communities that are nationally critical across New Zealand. So there's very little left of it. So the other one is Braided River because Braided River holds a lot of uh, bird life and a lot of bird diversity and most of those bird species are also endangered, highly endangered. Uh, and braided rivers have been heavily impacted by water attraction, uh, sediment accumulation, weeds, human hues. So it's always the same problems and come over and over again. Uh, and the other one are salt pans in central Otago, which is a, even more specific because they're limited to central Otago. And we've lost about, since human colonization and development, we've lost about 99% of the ecosystem. So it's already small and rare, but we've lost... 99% of the 40,000 hectares that were contained within Otago, and that's for the whole of New Zealand. So now we're left with very little to protect and try to restore. So, a big challenge. Not something that any one person can do on their own. Luckily for the rare plants in this Waitaki Valley area, they have local support. Uh, my name is Patrick Tipper. I'm the uh, Taika Kyle for um, Tafiri Waitaki. And what is Tefiria Waitaki? Tefiria is like, uh, it's the braids, the braids of the Waitaki. Uh, what we do is sort of like a restoration project. Our hopes are sort of to bring back, uh, you know, a lot of natives that were here beforehand so we can bring back the whole ecosystem. Led by Te Runanga Omoraki, Tefiria to Waitaki is focused on restoring biodiversity to the area. But this iwi-led initiative also creates career opportunities for whānau. Young Kayakatayo Kauri Tipa is particularly excited about that aspect. You know, you get to work with with your with your whanaunga, with your cousins and your and your family. So it's 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 amazing because you know it's not like you get to go to any job and get to talk to your to your cousins every day and um, work with them and have fun. So it's cool. And and the fact that I get to restore my home, my my river. Um, just, just where I'm living in that, you know, is um, it's pretty cool, you know. Today, Patrick, Mauriri, Jamie, Kauri and Les have all come along to Waipata Reserve in order to chat with Tom and Clement. They want to learn more about the rare plants here so they can make a joint plan to care for them, including growing some in their nursery too. So we're going to help them uh, propagate some seeds so there's more than one bank if uh, their propagation doesn't work that well. At least we have a, a backup plan. Looking into the reserve, a small path meanders up to a dramatic-looking bare-faced limestone scarp. This rock under our feet, made up of the remains of long-dead sea creatures, makes this a special place. So limestone ecosystems are usually characterised by a very different soil chemistry. So a lot of New Zealand is volcanic soil, so everybody knows about schist and basalt and all different things. But limestone is actually um, organ- like high organic content because they're basically ocean sediments that have turned into rock. And they're not very common in New Zealand and it makes the soil chemistry very different. And usually the soil is quite thin, so there's a lot of hard compacted limestone with a tiny bit of organic matter on the top, which means that it's an environment that's very specific for plants to grow on, which has driven a very specific uh, biodiversity on limestone soil. So, for example, there's limestone endemic, so plants that grow only on limestone. There is about 176 species documented. It's a very high diversity of plants. And if you say plants, there's flowers or there's moth and invertebrates living under flowers 
And because of the nature of the landscape on limestone, there's a lot of species of uh, reptiles as well. So we've got rough geckos, green geckos, a lot of very rare lizards are attached to limestone as well. So but it comes down to the chemistry of the soil and the geology. Time to find some rare plants. First, Tom gives us a health and safety briefing, with the key point being not to stray away from the path that he will lead us on. The grass has grown over cracks in the limestone and steep drop-offs and holes that are hard to spot. We head over the stile and into the reserve. Once we follow Tom off the main path to get to where the gentians are, the issue with the overgrown exotic grasses becomes very clear. That's our biggest issue. Chewing fescue, because that's a perennial grass, so it doesn't actually live several years. And that is really hard to kill because it's very thin blades, and even chemicals have a hard time killing it. And then the, that's about that high, but the root mat would be about that thick, and no water gets down past that. So it just intercepts all the, all the rain. So about like 40 centimetres of, of root mat that just yeah, blocks off everything. And also, it's really dense. So by the time it gets to the ground, no light gets down there. Yeah. So when it starts creeping on things, it just smothers everything. We meander along a poorly worn but distinct path and scramble up some bare limestone rock until we are on a cliff face, looking across a valley to a limestone scarp opposite. It's a pretty stunning landscape. We're standing on an overgrown grassy flat, but beyond us we can see the cliff drop down to a flat with some native bush growing in it. And hanging on, on this cliff face, peeking out, are the plants we have come to see. Yes, spot the gentian. See those white flowers down there? Oh. In the corner here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah down there. Yeah. Oh, see, that's see, one. See. Hi. Wow. <laughs> and you can see this. You can see the issue. It's like a... Where's Wally? Yeah, no, and... And that's when they're flowering. When there's no flowers, they're about that high. And they look like grass blades. Tom is responsible for the monitoring of the plants in this reserve. So yeah, this is um, what we call gentian site one. <laughs> and there's plants just under the sort of the shade of the caprosma there, along the crest and then down this slope. He says down the slope, but actually it's a pretty steep drop off. So Thomas had to get adventurous in his surveying methods. So we tie into the tree here and abseil off, redirect an anchor and abseil off. And we actually split this into about four different sections and did a count, a, a, an estimate of numbers of plants per section and then hand weeded. Every time he finds a new plant, Tom marks the GPS location, puts a tag in the ground near it, gets rough dimensions, gives it a healthiness score and does some weeding. Then he makes sure to visit that plant each year so that he can continually build a picture of how they are doing. The abseiling has helped greatly to get a better idea of how many plants there are. Over the last couple of years, we've, we've done counts, best estimates from the top here. We've not been able to get down the slope safely. And so when you're doing that, you're only really counting the flowers that you can see. Um, so this year, being able to get down and do a good survey close up and a handweed, We've, we've basically doubled the number of plants that we've found at this, so that's really good. And we've been able to manage some of this fescue 
Luckily, we have come when the plants are flowering. We can see the pretty, delicate white flowers poking up in the patches of the slope that Tom has hand-weeded. Without the flowers, they really would just look like another short type of grass. What number did I say? 1372. Oh, yeah. 1372, cool. Um... Tom's already done most of his surveying this year, but he has a couple of plants still to collect info on. Mawaruri helps by jotting notes, while Patrick wants to know about seed collecting. So we've just measured this length and its width to get a bit of an idea of its size for today. Um, and I'd give that one a five. So we've just got a bit of a, a health index, and basically five is like nothing wrong with you. Nice green leaves, yeah. healthy, and a one is almost dead. And then it's sort of graded in between, you know, 75% dieback or whatever. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with this plant here. And once it's flowered, the seed will come through. Yeah, yeah, so you see these ones here. Yes. The flowering, and then the flower, you've got the the ovary in the middle there, the green bit. Yes. That sort of turns purple once pollination's happened. It's been fertilised. This is all interesting stuff, though. And then they sort of brown off and dry up and turn into these like papery capsules yeah um and then they mature and they've got the seed in them you know it's ripe when you can hold your hand under it or a bag and just tap it patrick also asks about the habitat what kind of conditions do these plants need because they've chosen quite a dramatic place to grow on top and on the side of these steep scarps is that because of shade and moisture in this dry climate? Maybe, says Clement. But maybe it's also just because that's where they're left over. Once upon a time, probably would have been covered in broadleaf, like lowland broadleaf forest, which means that it would have been forest and then transitioning into bare limestone, a very thin soil, which is where all those rare plants would have been. And at the moment, we find them in very hard-to-reach scarves, that's because, probably because that's where they hanged on for dear life, because the sheep wouldn't go there, but also a very inevitable environment for weeds. But in all truth, we don't know, back in the days before sheep and people and when the forest was around, they might have been sprinkled all across the ecosystem. Maybe they're hanging on for dear life, but they would have been everywhere. And actually, some of the experimental work happening in another part of this reserve would indicate that they mightn't mind where they are. When Tom, Clement and I stroll around to that fieldwork site, we see that there is someone there, beavering away. Hi, I'm Jacinta and I'm doing a master's project at the moment in my second year at um, Otago University, partially supervised by the botany department and partially by Clement from DOC here. And yeah, I'm helping at the site earthquakes and also at Guards Road to look at weed removal methods in terms of helping the survival of rare native plants. It's quite a different setup to where the gentians were growing wild. It's a flat piece of land without much shade. You can see metre square plots that have obviously had something done to them. They stand out within the sea of overgrown grass. So we've done, well we have a control, so there's nothing there, and then a mowing treatment so that just clipping or like a weed eater um, and then we did like a shallow dig um, digging up just like a little bit of grass and then a deeper dig which um, we're already seeing is the best way to go um, and at Guards Road we also did some spraying plots too. 
And that deeper dig just lets you get down below the grass and then also below the grass roots. Yeah, well in some cases, although you can see that there's still things popping up and especially dandelions and things like that, the roots go quite deep. So we're thinking in the end there might actually need to be a mixture of treatments. So maybe mowing everything, spraying it, and then digging it all up so that everything is dead once we dig it up. What are you doing today? Uh, today I am just monitoring these plots where we planted gentian in a while ago. Um, just the growth of the gentian and the flowering of them. Um, and yeah, also taking some soil samples to look at the seed bank too. Yeah, see what's growing. The patch that has been dug out quite deep really catches the eye. Having dug through roots to the limestoney soil and without the competition from the grass, some really healthy looking gentian plants are flourishing in this square. Yeah, this is really cool though. We thought they were, we didn't have high hopes for the plants when we put them in because, yeah, I don't think something like this has really been done before. Um, But yeah, to see them, almost all of them are surviving and a lot of them are flowering. So that's really cool knowing that we probably can grow these plants in a nursery and then translocate them to sites. It's really good for restoration, yeah. They just need a little bit of help. Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes people are sort of opposed to that sort of conservation or see it as gardening or something, being like, oh, you can't be like too hands-on with the plants or whatever. But um, we do it all the time with fauna, like translocations and being super hands-on. So I yeah, don't see why we can't do that with plants as well. The field trial is working so far, with some good early results. Clement Legru has an idea of what he would like to try next. We're really trialling different approaches to protect those plants while restoring the ecosystem at a small scale. So we need to gather the data, see what works and what doesn't, and then we need to scale up because that's that's been one of the issues with uh, limestone plants is we've been really focused on the plant without looking up and without scaling up management. So now we need to find out how we scale up new management techniques. So if we want to restore the whole ecosystem, we're going to need more than spades and uh, knapsacks. So maybe the next step is start to hire diggers and do it a bigger scale and see how that works and how quickly we can regain the ecosystem, but also how quickly we might lose it again. So we need to make that ground again, but make sure that it stays there and we don't turn around in five years' time and then we've lost it again. So it's really not only resetting the clock, but keeping it where we want it to be. And at the moment, we're not even resetting the clock, so it's really a mind shift into what we do and the skill at which we do things. But for this to work... It has to be a local team effort. Because limestone plants are so limited geographically, often, like for the ones we're looking at here, the limit is the Waitaki Valley. So Teronaka Modeaki are the Kaitiaki of the whole of the species, and they really want to engage into that, and they really want to take, take that role. So as DOC, we only facilitate this for that, because Manafenua, like, ultimately, are the ones looking after the Tonga species. But also, a lot of limestone is on private land, because it was rich farming ground, it was rich 
eat like quarries for fertilizer, like white stone, we, we know how to do. So obviously it's been built on limestone, so high value. So every most of it is on private land. So if you don't engage the landowners, uh, you, you can have very quickly run out of land to, to manage and conserve. So you have to engage with, with landowners. And to be fair to, to farmers, they're under a lot of pressure at the moment, like everybody else, but they are also willing to engage with us, which is good. Looking around at this overgrown reserve, covered in exotic grasses, having listened to Tom and Clement all day describe the challenges they face, I can't help but ask the devil's advocate question. Why do it? Why put in all this effort and energy to save this small ecosystem and its quirky set of plants and creatures? Well, why do it? Because the first time I came to a limestone site, I looked at it and I was actually faced with a choice it looked too hard, and you you could put it in the too hard basket, shake your head at it, and throw your arms in the air and walk away. But if you do that, they don't stand a chance. Like those systems and those plans don't stand a chance. And also, we've created a problem, so now we need to find a solution. And I've had question like, why do you do that? Why, why is that such a big deal if they go extinct? But we have to remember that extinction is forever. So if you let them go, there's no way back. And do, do I want to live with that as a human being, especially European? I don't think I, I want to. So it's either you go down fighting or maybe you're going to win or you just give up. But I, I'm not willing to give up. Thanks to Dr. Clement Legrou and Tom Waterhouse from the Department of Conservation. Thanks also to the team from Tifiria to Waitaki, Patrick Tipa, Les Tipa, Kauri Tipa, Mauriri McGlinchey and Jamie. And to Jacinta Steeds, Master Student at the University of Otago Botany Department. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help, sound engineering was by Mark Chesterman, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. And check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you're looking for something else to watch and listen to, the Aotearoa History Show is back for a second season. With 14 new episodes, it's going to dive deep into some of the key issues, events and characters that help shape New Zealand. The first seven episodes are available now to watch. Visit rnz.co.nz and click on the podcast and series tab to find them or find it on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.